0: Welcome to episode three of the What's Going On Your Head podcast, where we explore the secret inner workings of the mind through performance art and discussion on stage, live streamed, and now through this podcast series. I'm Liz Smith, the host of this show. In this episode, you're going to meet another member of our team, Rupert Isles. He's in conversation with John Downes. John is going to perform three poems for us
1: words were my tool of choice it was never anything intentional i just found when i was experiencing intense emotions words used to come and i just used to write them down and that's basically how that happened so the three poems that we've got you know one's about that experience the other's about my experience in a you know in a very intense way uh, just ahead of a speaking appointments i had and, and the third around the regret that we feel when we're sort of tied up in an
2: emotional relationship
0: so, Roops, why did you decide you wanted to interview John Downs?
2: I think it was the openness of his experience of his own anxiety and of his father's mental illness through his poetry that really drew me to him as a person. He wrote into what's going on in your head, saying that he would be open to to the podcast, and he, and it was. In response to one of her first email call-outs. When I was reading over what he'd shared, reading them over, listening to how he was how he was presenting those poems, thinking, wow, you know, this is a very tender, honest story to tell. And the way that John has then developed his career into a coaching mindset model, which seemed like a very user-friendly way to expand access to tools for regulating one's mental health, and perhaps moving the conversation away from regarding mental illness as something only to be discussed one-on-one with a psychotherapist in quite a sort of clinical setting, to moving it into a more accessible, workplace-friendly format.
0: That's interesting. I'd forgotten he'd actually um, responded to us and reached out to us. I really felt there was a connection, and yet that was the first time, apart from a little pre-interview chat, that you two had ever spoken together.
2: There was. Yeah, I I agree. I I, I felt very, very connected to him quite quickly. And even then I sensed a certain warmth to him for sure. And then during the interview itself, we settled into a nice rhythm. It felt natural. It felt very conversational. I think we both let our guards down a little bit. So it became like a natural back and forth.
0: Yeah, no, that was, that was really good. And unbeknownst to you, when you recorded this, your start point of the interview dovetails very nicely with what we were talking about in the previous episode, where we were also talking about the experience of being in a mental health unit in a hospital. So thank you for that. Right. <laughs> um, and I think we should start by listening to John's poem, The Long White Corridor.
1: I did not know what we would find as we walked the long white corridor. As we took each cautious step, past the doors of other lives amongst the minds of other men. Those who are here are here because they are not all there. There is where they are not wanted. Here is where they are unwanted, but not minded. You take a step. You try a door. Will you find the one you're looking for, or is the one you came to see not here, in reality with the comprehension of the loss of a beloved relative you meet the body of the one you sought, but you meet the mind of another. Conversations ensue. The exchange reminds you of a game of table tennis. A pro plays a novice who's forgotten the rules. Rallies are short. Play frequently misses the table. But you did not come to win. You did not come to play. You came to be. To find and be found. Perhaps in knowing you, they will know themselves. Perhaps that is why you came. In finding you, they will find themselves. If they find themselves, you will have found the one you were looking for. You sit. You listen. You talk. You ache. Your brain somersaults and then attempts hibernation. I love you, you whisper to yourself. I love you, you want to scream at the top of your voice. If you can hear me, if you are in there, if you can understand, I love you. But now, you must go. Say your goodbye, like you said your hello. Close the door and pray. You will find your way out of the long white corridor.
2: So we just thought we could start by hearing a bit more about The Long White Corridor, you know, the background that you'd like to share for that piece.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So The Long White Corridor was my mid-twenties self reflecting on my mid-teen self. Uh, So around the point of my mid-teens, my dad had depression, uh, quite serious depression. And at that time, there were uh, quite a few of the mental health hospitals around and... I don't really remember much of the detail or the sequence of things, but I do remember going to visit him uh, in one of these hospitals. Mm. And it was, a, it was quite a traumatic affair, actually. You know, there's, there's a lot of people in a small space that uh, are struggling and struggling to different mm. degrees. So, yeah, this poem was really a, a description of that. And I really like metaphors. Um, I quite like things to be um, quite neat and sort of, I guess, organised in a way. I do like, to, and I think that's why I like the poetic form as well, because it sort of brings brings things together. And I was also thinking that what's quite good about it is the process of creating the poem means that you're sort of repeating the same thought pattern. And I think that in itself was quite cathartic. That was quite a you know, good process to be going through. So, yeah, this was about my experience of going to visit my dad. And so the idea of this long wide corridor, the metaphor mm-hmm. being... The comp- you know, actually it was a you know, long corridor that we were walking down, but also the corridors of the mind as well. So just the fact that the mind itself is quite mysterious and mm-hmm. we can get lost in our own minds to a certain extent.
2: When I was reading it, it, it was very powerful to me. I've listened to it a few times yesterday and a few times this morning. And I guess as you speak about it now, it doesn't sound like that institutional setup was, I was going to say it sounds a bit trite, but wasn't very loving. Uh, or even, doesn't sound like a very curative, Mm. healing place. Is that fair to say, in your experience with with your dad? Absolutely,
1: yeah. I mean, that would be my experience of being in there. And actually, subsequently, my own children, my own daughters, uh, struggled with her mental health. So an odd twist of fate, we've ended up visiting the the modern version of the mental hospital. I mean, my dad's been back in and out over the years anyway. So I guess we've seen the changes in the, the, the way the system has worked, moving people more into the community and giving them support there. But there's still mm-hmm. a small number of beds in a few um psychiatric wards and uh, i mean it's a challenging environment and you know i know the intention is is love and restoration and care and support uh, that's what they're there for but it, i think it's quite hard to create
2: that environment Did you see any changes, perhaps, in how you were impacted by it going to an institution more recently? I don't know. I think
1: I would need a little bit more reflection on that. And I think the fact that I would say that means that the shift isn't as significant as it could be. You know, There tends to be an emphasis on medication and on treatment Mm -hmm. in that sense, as as opposed to, I think, what people really need, which is deep conversations with people who are preferably trained. I know Mm -hmm. certainly with my daughter it was very difficult to get the cognitive support that we believed that she needed, but it was very easy to get the medical support. The evidence is that in most cases, medical support can help short-term, but doesn't affect long-term. You know, the long-term benefit comes from things like CBT, meditation, exercise, good diet, you know, the whole body experience. And I guess that's part of my mission really, is I experienced that as a child. I think one of the impacts of having that is that when I had my own issues in my mid-thirties, I was very clear that was a place I didn't want to go. I mean, physically and metaphorically, it's like, Mm -hmm. I know what that looks like. What do I do need to do? You know, and I I suppose I suspected I had a propensity towards that, whether it was Mm. genetic, whether it was experiential, it didn't really matter that there was some uh, potential for me to go down a similar route. And I was determined not to. So when I had an anxiety attack at at work, which felt like it came out of the blue, I was very clear Mm -hmm. this wasn't somewhere I was going to go. I know where that look like somewhere I wanted to avoid and and consequently my journey since then has been learning the tools and the skills to to keep me in a good place and Mm -hmm. then also wanting to share those with others and being very passionate and driven about going well these are the tools that you get when you're ill but these tools are brilliant for when you're well and if you're already well then they can make you weller -er." I don't think that's a word but you know what I mean
2: (laughs) yes I'm just thinking about the, the last line, actually, of Long White Corridor, just to tie it back to that first piece, the line being, pray that you will find your way out of the Long White Corridor. I was wondering, is there a bit of foreshadowing there to your personal um, experience with anxiety or is that more about your father's recovery?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's very much both. So it is that idea that we can get lost in our own minds and it's very easy to go into a physical institution and see somebody and just physically walk out but metaphorically that can be very difficult to do. For me, there was very much this concept of being locked in my own thinking or my own mind, and there being a risk of me perhaps one day ending up in the same place and finding I'm locked. And I guess locked in a room in my mind, which would then translate yeah. to being a mental health condition, which I wasn't able to release myself from.
0: So you said the poem was very powerful to you, um... What thoughts did it trigger off in your mind when you when you first read it?
2: I found it to be quite a lot, quite a heavy load for anyone at any age, but especially at a young age to see their parent who you might need to be of a certain um, capability and capacity, sort of it being dependent on them at that age, but then seeing them in quite a state. I, I felt very moved by that dynamic that really stuck with me the visual of just just see just visiting a parent in that situation at a young age was quite hard for me to to really sit with honestly when I listened to it and when we spoke about it
0: yeah that must have been really difficult and he didn't really talk about that too, too much did he it, it for him it was almost like this was a thing that happened and it, it was that thing and yeah a very interesting point mm.
2: In those moments of intense challenge of anxiety or depression, whilst trying to navigate to the right toolkit, has it been helpful in your familial experience or your own personal experience to come to a place of acceptance, of saying, actually, it's okay to be in a a dark place? Is that step one, maybe?
1: That's actually a very insightful and pertinent question for me, because it's taken me a long time to get to the position of acceptance and to understand the importance of that. So in the early days when I was doing all the personal development stuff I was very much one for you know looking for the silver lining in the cloud but the mm-hmm. risk is that you just sort of ignore the cloud or pretend it, it isn't there and I, I think I, you know that had some negative impacts on people because I was giving the impression it wasn't okay for them to be where they were and that they should always mm-hmm. be on this journey of improvement and growth etc and I realized that to a certain extent was a an addiction or an obsession for me. It was very powerful and sort of drove me, but actually wasn't healthy as a long-term strategy or experience. So it's relatively recently that I've come to understand the importance of acceptance. And, and I think okay. that all the way back comes to the way I sort of perceive we experience emotions, which is emotions are a physiological response to, to a situation. And that response is a programmed response from our whole history. And it happens in the moment and there's very little we can do to, to change it in the moment. We can decide how we respond to it and how we act on it, to some degree, you know, some more than others, but it is what it is. And I I think coming to to oneself with a degree of curiosity is very healthy. Mm. The person it's most important to have a good relationship with is yourself, and no one else can do that for you. And part of that relationship is the same level of curiosity that you might have in being with someone else. Because, you know, we are a bit of a mystery and who we are becomes revealed in our experiences and the circumstances we find ourselves in, the, you know, the, the pressures that we have. So being mm-hmm. curious and going, oh, that was really interesting. This happened and I responded like that. I wonder why that was. That wasn't particularly helpful. It's not really in line with my values or my intentions. I wonder what I could do over time to help my automatic response adjust so it's more in line with an outcome that I might like. But it starts from that position of acceptance.
2: And as you talk about it there, it sounds like there's also an uncoupling from this interactivity that you become more of an observer, perhaps, of it. The way you're talking about being curious about a thought. For me, in my own anxiety journey, I've found it intensely hard to not just be very binded to that thought or that reaction.
0: You reference your own anxiety journey and getting mm-hmm. binded on a thought. Can you tell us more about that and, and your experience in that regard?
2: Mm. I think I've struggled, particularly in my 20s, to not feel entwined or fused almost with a passing thought or sensation. What I mean by that is if there is a thought about potential danger, I used to become quite vigilant of my body. And it was this relationship between feeling and thoughts where maybe if I felt a certain sensation would cause a few thoughts to be fired off about oh you know my body's not feeling right I could be I had to worry about sudden sudden death about suddenly dying so I'd feel a sensation in my heart or my chest there'd be a thought oh you're about to die and the binding bit is that I was totally enmeshed with that thought there was no distance from it There was no uncoupling from it so when that thought arose it was me and it took me a long time a lot of stepping back basically to realize that there is a thought and there is something watching and observing the thought and that is me you know that was a really liberating step to make to allow thoughts to be there to accommodate them as something separate from me and sensation as well And once I did that, even if the thought was quite a scary thing about suddenly dying or a sensation which seemed scary in that moment, that distance allowed me to feel whole and separate from them. I had a panic attack about two months ago, cycling in Notting Hill, where even now at 32, after quite a long time, aware of my anxiety. Sometimes it catches me off guard because it's such an intense panic feeling. It's hard to uncouple from it. It's hard to feel not convinced by the danger that your, your body is telling you you're in.
0: So what happened in Notting Hill? What was the experience like?
2: Uh, it might feel quite triggering right now. I'm happy to go into it, though. I was cycling up Ladbroke Grove from north to south, so if anyone listening is familiar, there's a, quite a steep hill as you come up towards Holland Park, and I didn't know the area that well. kind of thought, oh, okay, I'll just keep cycling. And about halfway up, I really felt my heart pounding, and most of my mind at that point was just rational and thinking, well, it's a steep hill, you've been cycling already for 20 minutes. But then I got to the top, and it's funny, I could feel it kind of coming to me now. When I got to the top, I didn't respond bodily how I'd maybe hope. My heart was pounding and my my breath was very quick. That led to thoughts of, oh, this something has gone a bit wrong here. You've pushed yourself too hard. And it happens very, very quickly to the extent that I thought I was about to die, which only obviously exacerbates the palpitations, exacerbates the sensation. For about two minutes, that was what was going on in my head about this is, you know, this is it. You're about to die. But what I found to help me in that moment was to distract isn't quite the right word, but re-engage in the present by looking at all the colourful houses. So sort of looking, oh, blue house, pink house, cream house, green house, and any other details. I remember also gently stroking my leg as I kept cycling to sort of bring me back to the now, to sensation, to colours around me. And that did help. Unfortunately, when I came back, I could see the hill, even though it was going down this time, ahead of me. And I thought, oh, fuck. I, I, then I saw my body reacting then. I could feel the palpitations already preempting it. And in times gone by, I would have said, I would have assumed then that hills are dangerous for me. I need to avoid hills. But At that moment, I sort of leant into the fear and did go home through it. And it was horrible. But then, you know, I felt a bit more resilient
0: what was also interesting what you told me there was your technique for overcoming the the panic attack the the colors of the houses the sense touching yourself the sensation is that a learned technique
2: yes it is you know sort of adapted i had quite a few sessions of cbt in my early 20s in relation to this sudden death fear based on a misreading of some heart ECG results when I there was nothing wrong but I just sort of read into the fine print that was more about exposing myself to my thoughts so if the thought says this hill is going to cause you to have a heart attack you bloody well cycle up the hill and prove yourself wrong sort of thing I used to have other thoughts more sort of suspicious about if I listen to this song on my iPod there's a thought that this David Bowie song is going to I'm dating myself, like I said, iPod, but is going to is going to cause a heart attack just by choosing the song will cause something. And again, it was just testing. It was testing if that happens. And in this case, there's something a bit more about a mindfulness approach to being more aware of my surroundings and letting my body take care of itself. In that moment of intense exertion up a hill, if I were to focus on those sensations and exacerbate them by being anxious, it would take longer to recover. So by me being more present and thinking, well, what, what's, actually, what's actually happening? My body's doing its thing. There's houses over here. You know, I have legs. I can remember I have legs, because I don't. In the, in the heat of panic, it's a very heady experience. I don't remember in my body, so that's quite grounding.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that experience and explaining that, because I think that's a skill that a lot of us could take into our, our daily lives. You know, we all, to certain degrees, have these moments of panic Just by focusing on the real things, the things you can touch and bringing, centering yourself back down. That's a really, really good technique. And I I think I'm going to try and apply that in my own life.
1: I trained as a mechanical engineer, I like the problem solving side, but I also like the, the physical mechanics side of things. And so metaphorically, I like the idea that the brain is a thought machine. And I imagine like a bubble machine where you turn it on and it just spews all these bubbles out. The brain's job is to generate thoughts, which it does exceptionally well. Some people even more than others. That doesn't mean all of those thoughts are helpful, useful, relevant. And yeah, when we're bound to them, we can be driven by the experience of this almost, you know, random thought generator. And I do think we need that separation to be able to look at it with acceptance and curiosity and go, oh, that was an interesting thought. I wonder where that came from. I wonder what was driving that. Is that actually quite helpful right now? I don't think it is. I'm not going to act on it, but I suspect it might come up again or, you know, I'm I'm curious as to know to where that's come from and how that might impact me. I like to describe that a bit like that drawer that you've got. You've got a lot of stuff in it and you open the drawer and you take it all out and mm-hmm. then you get rid of the stuff you don't need. You organise the stuff that you do need and the things that you need most you put at the front and then you put it all back in again. Having an opportunity to talk through things with people can be very much like that process.
2: You talked about that awareness of having a thought, mm. not wanting to engage with it, but then I guess there's also a step of, but I'm okay that you, the thought, are there, that yes. you're holding space. Yes. I'm not interested too much in making a thought train with you. It's fine for you to be upstairs or wherever, you know, in me.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. You say it's fine. There's almost no merit in judgment. I mean, we do it all the time. But Mm. what does it benefit us to judge a thought that's happened? It's like, well, it happened. Uh, Is it okay? Well, it happened. (laughs) What do Mm. I do with it is the important question. The fact is it's there and it came up. Part of that journey is learning to separate you from your thoughts to allow you to separate from when you're having conversations with other people. So again, that you can come at those Mm. interactions with curiosity and with acceptance as well and go, well, that's interesting. When you said that, this happened for me. I'm not terribly Mm. comfortable with it, but that's, that's what happened. You know, I wonder how we deal with that because the impact of that is I want to behave like this, or, you know, I feel I'm getting upset or I'm getting angry or, and and yeah, be open um, and jointly curious about our emotions or our thoughts with other people. I think it's a really important part of a relationship. It requires a, a huge degree of vulnerability, which we're not always great at.
2: And it sounds like a very mature position to not be embroiled in emotion and to not feel yeah. the need to find causation in my emotion in somebody else. That sounds mm. like quite a grown up place.
1: I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> So, what's coming up for me is as you have been talking in question and questioning and thinking as a response to my thoughts is this idea of the linking, if you like, between the maturity and the separation, and that the, you know, it's the Frankl mm-hmm. or Covey quote around it's not the thoughts itself it's how we respond in the situation it's not circumstances but it's our the way that we respond to those circumstances that determines our, our character you know it's in that small space that we've got
2: oh between stimulus and response
1: especially. yeah and, that, and I think that's where the maturity comes in perhaps a recognizing the space owning the space and then realizing you can make choices in that space as well say with all of the Eckhart Tolle stuff around the power of now and being in the moment is now is the only time that we've got and even saying now takes longer than we experience now in and it's this paradox almost that constantly just experiencing the present moment humans we've got this opportunity of I think positive psychology calls it prospection so we're not driven by our programming we actually can make intentional decisions about how we want our future to be which can Mm. be different from our past and very different from our programming. However, we do need different programmes, different skills, different paths, tools in order to to get us there. Change requires effort and change is effortful. And it's knowing how to to make those tweaks and and changes in order to live a life that, that we have intentionally designed.
0: I'm at risk of taking us down a little bit of a controversial rabbit hole here. After listening to your interview, my reaction was, gosh, this is a very eloquent, very smart, very intellectual conversation about how the mind works, uh, about our physiology, about the role that biochemistry plays in that. And this very analytical skill of, sort of learning how to observe our emotional responses and then take control over on how we act on them. There's references to uh, Stephen Covey, the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. There's a reference to Eckhart Toller, the author of Power of Now. Also, the Auschwitz survivor, Viktor Frankl. Uh, John talks about him, uh-huh. too. And, quote, Viktor Frankl says that the last of human freedoms is the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. And obviously, he uh-huh. really had to learn that you know, being an Auschwitz survivor. And it's a very analytical way of thinking and a very valid and absolutely valid one too but I'm wondering whether that's a very male way of thinking
2: yeah I I can see that being quite a male tendency for some reason it feels more comfortable for me to think of it as quite a I always get this wrong whether it's left brain or right brain but this all more rationalist side of the brain problem solving analytical side what it feels to me as, as you tell me that is it feels quite heady it feels quite unheart centered in terms of an analytical discussion, quite theoretical. And I wonder if we tend to assume a more feelings focused discussion is more feminine. So I can probably agree with you in terms of that analytical being a more male conversation. And yeah, that's probably fair. Maybe that relates to a level of vulnerability, which men tend to feel less comfortable with sharing. Although I did feel the conversation was quite vulnerable, was quite open.
0: It definitely felt vulnerable and you shared a lot and, you know, it felt very comfortable conversation. That's an interesting interpretation. You know, that this women are more comfortable talking about feelings. Men tend to perhaps go more to the analytical as a way of mm. making sense of the world. Perhaps, I mean, maybe what I've just said is just going into gender stereotypes and and that's not true at all. I was super interested in that conversation. It was a very, very, very interesting conversation and it really got me thinking. But it also started me asking questions about identity. Are our biochemical responses, are our emotions part of our identity or are they separate to us? And there was almost conversation around stepping back from our emotions, observing our emotions, and then mm-hmm. controlling them. Should we be stepping back from those emotions was the question that, that I asked myself. And, and I don't know the answer.
2: Where I immediately seem to be going in terms of response to that question about emotion is similar to what we were discussing earlier about thoughts in the sense of providing space for an emotion to develop and fizzle of its own accord safe in the knowledge that you as a self are separate from it and is able able to observe it. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I've noticed in my own journey with fear, with anger, if if I allow that emotion to be to be accommodated, not to act on it, which is wholly different. I don't feel there's anything intrinsically wrong with any emotion. And the more you try trying to suppress or to package up and push back, I don't think that's really possible without it then coming out later down the line. And again, it goes back to that point about I'm mindful of you said the word control. I wouldn't necessarily use personally use the word control. I would I'd probably say accommodate, allow to percolate. Because I think controlling is actually sometimes where you can become angry about being angry, say, or anxious about the anxiety. Definitely the latter for me is, is something. Like, oh, my God, I'm anxious. And then you feel more anxious rather than saying, oh, I'm anxious. You know, frankly, this is horrible, but I'm anxious <laughs> is as a quicker way, frankly, it's a more efficient way for the anxiety to fizzle.
0: The second of John's poems we're featuring in this episode is called Sorry Again, and it's about the emotion of anger.
1: I call to the moon with a sigh of despair. I look to the stars for a glimmer of hope. I asked for the clouds to pour down cleansing rain, but it's still just me and my conscience again. I begged for the dawn to return and restore, to take the world back to those moments before, to reset the pieces that move before mate, to give me a chance to choose a new fate. But true to their form, the sands of time pass. The grains cannot rise, they must fall through the glass. The earth does not care for my foolish mistake. My cries will not cause its heart to awake. But not so your love who is blown by the breeze and his rage has the power of the swelling of seas and his flame is ignited by darkness, not light. In the blindness of anger there is only one right. Alas, this is me. By myself I am accused and for each new explosion by my own hand refused. Strike this scene from our play, this one-sided duel, and restore to your heart this hot-headed fool.
2: I had some thoughts here, but maybe maybe if you'd like to share initially some more background on that piece and how it feels recording it recently, going back to it, have you have you has it been resting for a few years, or is it you know, what's the story with that piece?
1: I do revisit the poems. I brought them all together a few years ago, maybe ten or fifteen years ago. And I do reread them from time to time. Again, I find it very cathartic. And that I just, I really like that one. It just, it really expresses a very powerful thought process and emotional process for me, which is you've done something, you know, it was in the heat of the moment. Um, it just feels daft when you look at it from after the event, but you've hurt someone in the process and you really wish you hadn't, but you can't go back. You can't change what you said. And Uh, you know you just wish the whole world was either swallow you up or allow you to go back and and make that decision again and it it doesn't you know you have to take it as it is and and move Mm. forward so yeah it's it's just that sense of oh you know I'm it's so frustrating that you feel this this anger and you know it's not the right way of dealing with it but you do it anyway and then you know you hurt Mm. somebody and then you feel the regret for it and it's just oh why are we there why is this happening Mm. so it's sort of bringing all that together I, I like the way it works in terms of the you know the rhythms and the, the metaphors with it particularly this idea of it's happened at night so it's you know happened in the evening mm-hmm. night time and you're looking up at the moon and just wishing you know just sort of trying to talk to it really and going oh and then you actually find that you've spent the night doing that so you've got the dawn coming on and you want the whole world to go back and take you back to the night before
2: and in that last line restore to your heart this hot-headed fool that's beautiful. What, who who are you speaking to in that line?
1: I have to say it's probably my wife. I was thinking, okay. I, I, although I don't remember the specific situation, but I, I imagine that will be a yeah, an, an argument that I had with my wife at some point. We don't argue a lot. I mean, we, we do argue, which is healthy. So it's not like we're doing it all the time. But I think in terms of who it's who it is that I'm likely to have um, offended in some way I think it's mm. is probably her and I, I sort of enjoy the, the word play as well so in that last paragraph um, the last verse it's around that you know by my own hand refused so it's the combination of being refused as in relit as that mm. explosive power but also refused as
2: in you know somebody rejecting you because you've sort of brought this pain to them again and you talk about the blindness of anger mm. in that moment that there is only one right. Perhaps I read that to mean that you can only see your side yeah. in that heat of the moment.
1: Yeah, exactly. And again, I just love the paradox and the contrast that you've got this blindness or this myopia about only seeing one root. And yet I'm talking about fire and explosions, which is bright light as well. So it's this kind mm. of, you've got this energy going on and yet it creates darkness. And that's just such an odd an odd contrast. And again, the whole refused thing is about relighting that that energy and that fire, but rather than that light creating, allowing you to see things better, that Mm. that energy is actually stopping you seeing things. And that's sort of, again, a paradox that with all of this Mm. stuff going on, you actually see less and that just seems crazy.
2: You know, as as we talk about expressing emotion as a general frame for our, for our conversation and talking here about anger, some reflections I've been doing recently about my experience with anger is I have started to realize that I don't feel, any more alive than I do in those moments of anger and the sort of the potent life force nature of it I guess it's a pretty simple question I'm mulling over what it's yeah how how anger manifests in you how it feels
1: sorry when you said you don't feel more alive as in do you you feel really alive or you don't yeah
2: I I couldn't feel any more alive alive. than I do in anger I feel invincible in a Mm. way I feel strong I feel You know, sometimes I have quite angry runs, for example, Mm. uh, where I go for a run and then I get I get a bit enmeshed in some thoughts. It's a bit unpleasant. I start to push back on the anger and feel, oh, you know, I don't want to be angry. Mm. But then if I sit in it, it eventually dissipates. But I also realize, you know, I feel I feel big. You know, I feel strong I feel you know and I, I'm wondering is that to be you know ha, how to uh, ha, how to relate to it I suppose because there is an element of seeming strength and life force-ness if you will about it yeah
1: um, yeah I really like the idea that emotion is energy in motion so you've got that sort of force going on whether it's a positive or a negative thing it's just you know there's this huge amount of energy going on
0: When you talked about your angry run, I really engaged with that. You know, the fact that you said that's the moment when you feel most alive is when you're having an angry run. And you're right, there's a real taboo about anger. And I thought your comment about giving yourself permission to feel anger was a really good one. I guess as long as anger doesn't lead to harm, then then it's kind of okay to feel angry, right, and to be angry. Yes. And to almost embrace that. That anger is as a positive emotion, even though it's even though it's couched as a negative emotion, it can actually be a positive thing somehow.
2: Yeah. I'm just remembering saying that point about feeling most alive. It feels like a life force anger. It feels I feel strong. I feel big. I feel physically big. I think, when I'm angry. I mean, I think it can be positively channeled. I would say that. What I've struggled with is being angry about the anger during a run and spiraling into inner dialogues and conversations. And then even though I feel quite alive, upset with myself for not enjoying where I am and not enjoying the music I'm listening to say. What I've tried to do is notice the anger and think, oh great, in a way, let me try, well not oh great, but uh, okay, <laughs> let me try and focus on the run or the song and, and use this emotion that's come up. The quicker I can notice the anger without suppressing it, but allowing it to be, the less angry I, I ever really become. But in a way I'm still allowed to use that spurt of anger to charge me forward, literally.
0: And that's a very, and I'm going to use your words here, that's a very mature way of thinking. Getting to that maturity of sort of really the curiosity of how our brain's working, why we're reacting in certain ways and understanding it and having that separation, it's really hard to do. It's really hard to get to to that level of maturity and that was one of the things that impressed me uh, about John. Uh, you know, that he's, yeah. he's got
2: there. I definitely agree with that in, in regard to John. And you're absolutely right. I think it's understandable and it's quite common to sort of outsource our emotion, you know? So the reason why we are angry is something happened in our childhood or it's a circumstance, it's a, delay, a plane delay or traffic and therefore the anger is caused by our environment or caused by relationships. The issue with those examples in terms of change or progress is that you're basically saying i can't solve this this is caused by something external but the maturity comes from owning your emotion in the sense of saying my anger is my shit frankly it's my thing i'm separate from it but it is my emotion and so therefore i can have a relationship with it and i can decide how to respond to it it's not caused by anything else externally it may be triggered by that but in terms of how i entertain it and respond that's on me and that, that takes a lot of maturity because it's quick and it's easy to blame other people, other circumstances, but it doesn't really resolve anything.
0: And that's something that I really need to learn how to do. But I don't know how to teach myself to do that. I know technically, I know analytically, that's what I should be doing when I have these emotions, but I'm not succeeding in achieving that. And I don't know how. how, how do you get to that place?
2: For me, it's been partly about giving yourself the space to entertain uncomfortable emotions in a calmer environment. For example, through a meditation where you can calmly sit down or go for a stroll. But when you, basically when you're in quite a good place, is to bring to mind an episode which precipitated some anger or, or anxiety, I've done it with both, or, or fear. Not something which was extremely traumatizing, But for me, it could be, you know, an unpleasant exchange at Tesco's or a traffic jam. And to try and paint that picture as if you've got a painter's brush in your mind about everything that was going on. Where were you? What was the interaction? And then really, most importantly, sit with the bodily sensations and the feelings. And then what I feel happens is that you start to that anger, for example, or anxiety start to feel less dangerous. You're more familiar with them. Mm-hmm. so in the heat of anger when it arises you think oh okay yeah this is this is my anger response okay i also know that it's fleeting it's impermanent i also know that it's not me because it's it's passing through me and so i think it's about trying to train familiarity of it but from a calmer place because anger comes on really quickly and anxiety comes on really quickly so it's not really fair for ourselves to train ourselves to be with anger only in the heat of anger you know it's kind of like not it's kind of like you know emergency services they do drills for a reason so it's kind of like doing a drill for the for the heat of the moment
0: that's such a good answer such a good answer the final poem we're featuring is called of piccadilly and it's about the sensation of claustrophobia
1: Boxed in, coic din, smoking, choking, dirty skin, doing my head in, heaving, seething, thieving me of breathing, filthy air, filthy hair, filthy rich, filthy poor, airs and graces, stony faces, manic paces, no parking spaces, dusty, gusty, busty, cut and thrusty, pounding, hounding, lost and founding, hectic. Eclectic Electric Fancy, dancy, sicker fancy, raptured, captured, caught and traptured. Can you see me? Come and free me, help escape the fated faking, fuming frenzied, fortune filling, life undoing, dirty, dragging death of living.
2: The third poem. Of Piccadilly, which for me had quite an, an intense
1: mm. sort of
2: mania to the yeah. pacing of it. I guess because of its setting, you know, well, I'll pass it over to you to talk more about it, but there was a chaos to it and a messiness in a way to it. Talk us through that one.
1: It's called Of Piccadilly, and the context of it was I was going down to speak at a conference in London. I live not far from Birmingham, so uh, I go down to London from time to time. I was staying over at a hotel the night before. And I'd woken up with a, a migraine or a bit of a headache, which was frustrating because I, you know, was presenting later on in the day. So I thought, well, okay, I'll try and. I think we got there late in the evening. I thought, okay, I'll just try and get some fresh air and clear clear my head. So I pulled back the curtains, and, and there behind the glass was this brick wall. So you know, there was no window. And I was like, oh, okay. And I, was, I have to say, I started to feel a little bit claustrophobic at that point. I think I'd already got that feeling. I guess that's what you know, the migraine sense was mm. anyway so I went all the way down the down the flights of the building to the bottom floor went out of the lobby area to get some fresh air and was onto a main road so there was just traffic and there was fumes and I thought oh, you know there's no fresh air down here so I then looked yeah. up to see if there was some sunshine and yet there was some sunshine but it was seven or eight stories up above me mm. so again that sense of claustrophobia and it it was reflecting on that, and it was this pull, really, that big cities like London can have, where they are very exciting, and there's a lot going on, there's a lot of energy, and there's a lot of pace, but they can also be very lonely places, and, you know, despite the fact there's so many people there, and they're places of extreme contrast, so we we'll talk about filthy rich and filthy poor, and yeah, so it's just this all of this coming together I was expressing a a a fear I suppose or a concern that despite all of this intensity that it's something that can be very attractive and very enticing and can really sort of draw you in which is where that sort of last rather (laughs) rather intense line comes in about being freed from it and somebody coming escaping it but even there you know there's a lot of words in there but got fortune filling in there so it's a fortune filling dirty dragging death of living it's it's not. It is all bad. It isn't. There's, you know, the streets are are paved with gold, as they say. That's not the whole story. So that was really, a, it's a combination of the the way I was feeling with this migraine coming on, and then just mm. concepts of the the contrasts in the city and um, enjoying the pleasures of it, but not really wanting to be drawn in permanently. The line "thieving me of breathing," which
2: perhaps relates to what you said about claustrophobia feeling claustrophobic what does that feel like is that, an anxi- is that an anxiety how does it did you do you remember any sort of bodily sensations i mean yeah. it sounds like literally there was a an mm. aerobic reaction yeah so I,
1: not anxiety in that case but it was you know you can feel it on my chest and it is that sense of having walked out the lobby door and there just being traffic i like i like fresh air um and it was that sense of wanting to take a deep breath and all that there was was fumes and that the deeper mm. the breath you take the you know, the more that takes away your breath, that that contrast again. You know, the, the manic pace is no parking spaces, the cut and thrusty, the dusty. Um, those are all parts of the same sort of manic nature of traffic.
2: I've always felt that I needed to find a, a city which matched my pace, my velocity. Nice. And It's interesting you talk about amplifying, because actually, and now I'm starting to reflect on personally, I've only, you know, the vast majority of my life I have lived in big cities, whether that's been in this country or, or elsewhere, often of a similar, uh, despite being very cosmopolitan places, often of a similar pace. And I'm actually, I'm starting to realize that is it is it is it an amplifying? Yeah. Is it actually amplifying? Is it actually come sort of compounding? rather than complimenting me. And is it meeting me where I'm at or do I actually need that Hmm. peace and harmony around me to bring me down to a more of of an equilibrium?
1: That's that's a really interesting question. Yeah, that's a good question to ask. I guess it might take time to uh, let yourself answer it, but that's a a really interesting question. I also think it's um, that that same reflection and something I was saying earlier talks to the, the fact that we have these adaptations that create behaviors in us and we find those behaviors helpful but sometimes the way in which we reach those behaviours are not well adapted. And when we amplify them, that's when things can break. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's... In fact, I think we talked about this in when, we, when we chatted before the podcast, uh, this idea of papering over the cracks, that you know we're complex people and there's a lot going on. And sometimes it's fine, like with a building, is to literally paper over the cracks. And if it looks great and it works, then don't worry about it. But sometimes mm-hmm. you know, if the crack reappears in the paper... And you're doing that a couple of times then it's time to get the paper off and to look at the plaster and if you re-plaster and that crack still appears then it's time to get the plaster off and look at the brickwork and the, the way in which we tackle things the the mechanism that we use to do that can be unknowingly uh, poorly adapted when things become more difficult or when we're in more um, intense situations and that's yeah. where we sort of need to go back and go well why is you know uh, how are we coming about doing this what is the way that we motivate ourselves um you know what are the conditions that we live in how do we find energy and uh, passion to the to drive the things that we do is it coming and again this is a classic thing for me is i don't like coaching people towards a goal in order for them to be happy or content because the goal that they're going to is no different from the place that they've just arrived from where they were before <laughs> so if you know, if, you, if there's not a degree of contentment when you, where you are, then there's a high risk that you'll take that discontent to where you're going. So it's like a, t- a dual path. And one is to go, well, how can you find contentment in where you are and then mm. develop goals from where you are to where you want mm. to be? But that's a, it's a growth goal rather than that. It tends to be uh, driven from inadequacy. So we say, mm. I'm here. I don't want to be here. I want to be there. And I'm not going to be happy until I'm there. So you then spend the whole of that journey being unhappy until you Mm. get to that point where there's a much better way of doing it, which is to go, I'm here, okay, where I am. I would Mm. like to be over there. And for all of the time that I'm moving from here to there, I'm going to enjoy the fact that I'm progressing towards something that's important to me. So one of those models has one point at which you're happy momentarily until you go on to the next thing. And the Mm. other is, is, you know, a total journey of contentment. And it's You know, I I think our society through, partly through marketing and, you know, the way that the economy is very much driven through GDP, you know, we feel like we're doing our part when we're, when we're buying into things, but it's just sort of turning all of that around and going, we can be driven and motivated from where we are with our values going out rather than purely just uh, defining something that we haven't got and trying to move towards it. I think those two come in parallel, but the the value other priority
2: and it sounds like there's a bit of a journey there to internalize your own sort of locus or center of of happiness
1: yes yeah away
2: away from you know thinking oh that next promotion will that'll be it that'll be it for me that'll be the dream or that next house yeah. it's always out out away there
1: yeah and it's really just bringing all of that I mean even this I've got a thing up on there that says that life begins at the end of your comfort zone so mm. I have a, a bit of a problem with that I think the, the principle of it absolutely and it's an easy phrase to, to use and remember but I think that what we do is we don't step out of our comfort zone we just invite discomfort in so it's that's a much more centered way of looking at it so it's always it's always you're always here and it's always now. So, you, you know, you exist at the centre of your experience. Uh, mm. The world does revolve around you. It, it has to because you see the world through your own universe. So it, it's actually when, when we when we move, we're sort of bringing things t- towards us rather than us moving towards them somehow. You know, you, c- you can't move from where you are because you, you, you're always there. Because <laughs> if, if I take a step over here, I'm going to be there. But, you know, I'm still still centred. So it's about sort of bringing, I, don't, I just like the idea of just bringing things towards you. So you're always centred. You're always here. It's always now. Um, but you can bring other things into, into that zone. And that, that zone of comfort can increase. If you lean into the boundaries. Yeah, I guess so. Um, or as I say, just it's bringing, things, bringing things in, uh, inviting discomfort in. And the thing I like about inviting discomfort in is when you're stepping out of your comfort zone, you're immediately metaphorically at risk whereas when you're inviting discomfort in you've got this large area that you're already happy with which is true but you're choosing something to go well i'm I'm going to accept some vulnerability here and i'm going to bring that vulnerability into this otherwise safe space but it gets the proportions right
2: john it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today thank you so much for sharing your story for sharing your performance pieces and giving some more color about your day-to-day i really appreciate it thank you
0: John says poetry is his tool of choice. Do you have a tool of choice to deal with anxiety?
2: I think I probably got a few. Um, I think what helps uh, is to listen to bodily cues for activity. Sometimes I can try and force myself to sit at a desk and do screen work when what I really need is 15 minutes of of a run or doesn't even have to be a or sort of like <laughs> vigorous cleaning or <laughs> something on my feet. Um, so I'd say activity has been a really good um, antidote or response to anxiety. I think also writing for me has been a really helpful way to explore. We've talked about discovery and exploration in this conversation. And I think solely running and solely being active can become a bit of an escapist um, response. And it can also mean sort of like, oh, I'm, I'm fearful anxiety. So I balance that with actually sitting down and exploring it and thinking, oh, I was really anxious this morning. I wonder, you know, I just had a conversation with X and it it really triggered me. So yes, writing, journaling, spoken word, sort of writing as well, meditation as well, a blank canvas to bring to mind troubling Episodes in a relatively calm place has been a great tool for familiarity with emotion and thought. As you're saying, coming to a more dare I say it's a bit of a journey, but the maturity I think comes from having a toolkit of exploration. But to do that, you have to have then come to a position in in my case of saying that I am not the anger. I have diffused from it, and now I can investigate it. But for as long as I was enmeshed with it and bound with it then you just think that's you so there's no point in saying oh I'll investigate it because you well you just think that I'm what I am anxious that was what I thought I'm just anxious rather than it being a a feeling
0: so that was the end of my question sets Uh, how do you feel after having done our interview together
2: good yeah it's it's nice to recall the conversation Um, I did feel like a really, really strong connection to John. And um, I think probably quite a lot of parallels in terms of his, his discussion of his anxiety, less so about, his, about the, the White Corridor uh, poem, but more his journey. Um, so I, I felt quite um, empowered to share those stories about my own challenges. Uh, no, it feels good to talk about it.
0: I want to thank both John and Roots for sharing their thoughts and experiences with us so honestly and eloquently. Hearing them talks really made me think um, far more about how I respond to my own emotions. So thank you to both of you. If you want to find out more about John Down's work, I would encourage you to head over to his website at glassfall.info, where you can find out more about the magic mindset program he has developed. Here are a few words from John explaining what the MAGIC acronym stands for.
1: So You start being mindful, so you you actually know Mm -hmm. things are going on and then you're accepting, so you go, that is how it is. And then I think a great step is gratitude. You go, well, with compassion, I look at what I'm doing and I realise that I'm trying to do that for a good reason. I wonder what that is. And then you've got intentional, which is, it might not be an adaptation that I'm happy with. This is what I choose. And courageous is saying, well, in order to put this new world order into practice, there may be a few things, that discomforts I need to invite in. And that's where sort of yeah, courageous activity goes. And the other part of magic uh, that came up was uh, what I call vibe. So the question is, what puts you in a positive or negative state? And that's where vibe comes in. So that's your values, your intentions, your beliefs and your expectations. So broadly, if something happens to you, and it's in line with your values, your intentions beliefs, or your expectations, then you'll get a positive response. It's your physiology going, yep, yeah, great, that's look, that looks good. You know, we're on track here. If it goes against those, then it's sort of the opposite happening.
0: This brings us to the end of this episode. If you're enjoying the series, please do like and review it because it does help more people find it. If you're a musician, a comedian, a dancer, or spoken word artist with lived experience of mental illness, and you would like to perform at one of our shows or be part of this podcast, please do reach out to us via the contact form on our website, which is at www.whatsgoingonyourhead.org. There's also a page on the website listing charities and organisations where you can get mental health support. A big thank you once again to our resident musician and podcast editor, Kim Halliday, I've been lucky enough to hear a preview of Desiderium, a quite unique musical folk ghost story that Kim has just created. It's going to be released very soon, and you can find out more about that and his other work on his website, kimhalliday.com. I would also like to tell you about the feature documentary I've made. It's called I Am Gen Z, and it's looking at the impact of the digital revolution on the mental health of young people and how Generation Z is surviving in the world broken by tech. You can find more about that at imgenzfilm.com. In our next episode, I'm going to be interviewing Laura Campbell, and we're going to be floating on a fictional surfboard and doing a deep dive into the subject of adult anorexia.